Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose prolific literary output has been engaging and terrifying readers the world over. With an array of titles, including A Place for Sinners, The Fallen Boys, and House of Sighs, he's explored real-life traumas and fantastical frights alike, all in the service of storytelling of the highest order. Joining us all the way from Australia, please welcome author and filmmaker Aaron Dries. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. I am so excited that uh, you were able to stop by Dead for Filth on your brief sojourn to Los Angeles. A brief sojourn is putting it politely. I have not slept for three days, and I'm living for it. I know. Uh, based on our, our conversation before we went on the air, it's like you're on a, a world tour. You're like rock starring it out right now. I, I am Mr. Just Say Yes right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hey, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, on the way over, we were saying, uh, look... I'm, I've come this far. I might as well not say no now. Well, I'm glad you said yes to us. And, Thank uh, you. I'm excited to dig into uh, all the things that you're working on and all of uh, the, the horror that's exciting you. But first, before we get started, why don't we just start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think genre audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? Well... I did know that you were going to ask that, but like so many of your guests, because I listen to this show and love it, um, I will preface it by saying I should have prepared for such a question. (laughs) Uh, Why horror? Why horror for me? Can it start with a story? Absolutely. Okay. So my gateway into horror was through my grandfathers on both sides, on my mum and father's sides, and they were big movie watchers and big readers. Um, And they've both subsequently passed since then, and they were the people who kind of slid the, the, the certain novels under the table for me to check out when R.L. Stein just was not going to cut it anymore. Right. And uh, they were the people who would record films off late night television and say to my grandparents that they had edited out certain parts and certain scenes when really they had and they're like, Aaron, you really need to check this stuff out. Uh, and they saw something in me that I had yet to see. And that has been something that, uh, and I guess it's because I am quite an open book, people seem to be able to preface who and what and where I am and what direction I'm going way before I possibly can. And uh, and they gave me uh, ins and two of those, like, you know, gateways uh, kind of I hold still close to my heart. But now that they've passed, um, I don't know, horror feels a little bit like keeping them alive. And it, it kind of wrapped around me. It became a uh, something that I, I fell in love with hard and fast, I guess. And I, I had an, a voracious appetite for it. And I'm from originally from a very small town in Australia. And there was no one like me. And horror felt like a hug. And the further in I went, the more I realized that um, of every genre that I was exposed to, and I read anything, I watch everything, uh, from old to new, across many, many genres, there's nothing... There's no genre quite like horror if you are an empathetic person and if you are hungry for validation or if you don't want to feel alone. It's 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 the ultimate uh, kumbaya, I guess, so to speak. And that was something that I needed at a certain part in my life. And then and I guess to some degree it's also you end up chasing the dragon. Uh, you want to find the, the high that you felt uh, and you end up going down the rabbit hole. And you go from watching Child's Play to watching Cannibal Holocaust, perhaps a little quicker than a child maybe should. <laughs> but but also that comes with the naughtiness of uh, the naughtiness of it all as well, and that was attractive too, because you know 
it was an out as well, you know. I was I was a well behaved kid. I was that kind of shy kid. I used to draw, I used to write, I used to like do all that type of stuff. And yet behind closed doors there was somebody who wanted to express themselves in a number of ways. And horror movies was kind of made me feel a little stronger. And I maybe did, I did, you know, a lot is written about identifying with the final girls out there. And I think I probably did to some degree. But I think what I loved so much about horror was the craft of it all. I loved what made a book scary. I love the style the of expression that the voices that come out of horror in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I There are certain fundamental films to me that, uh, that I am... I hunger to watch constantly and I think of all the time and nothing makes me happier than indulging in those fascinations because not only does it make me feel good, it makes me feel a part of a bigger community. It also makes me feel a little bit like I'm still hanging with my grandfathers and they're showing me like a movie that my grandmother doesn't want me to watch. Well, I think too in in your pulling back the layers of this onion of your interest in horror, there are a few phrases that that kind of leapt out to me. One of them, of course, is when you said there was no one like you in the town that you grew up in. And then you then draw this parallel to finding community in horror. And yes, you mentioned that sometimes we're drawn to Final Girls, but for you it was bigger. It was the craftsmanship. It was the validation of the horror. That was Validation was a word you used earlier. Do you think then that draw as is the nature of the discussion on this show does connect with with queer identity as well then well is this the point we start talking about carrie (laughs) we can talk about carrie if you like (laughs) carrie was my definite uh my first cinematic love uh this of course being brian de palma's version as great as the uh the angela bettis version can be and and uh the julian moore version uh I, that that film certainly spoke to me, and it was the leap from children's literature to adult literature that was passed to me at an age when I really didn't understand the content. Um, and when I saw that film, uh, I saw the film before I read the book, I, I, I was all of a sudden at home because, you know, I never got that prom. You know, we don't really do that in Australia. There isn't a culture of that end of end of schooling celebration. Uh, it's a very different type of thing back in Australia. Uh, and what I have subsequently, uh, you know, kind of learned is that from other people's experiences that there's something about that particular story that obviously rings true with a lot of gay guys. Um, and people, I, I'm only going to talk about gay guys because that's that's how I identify. Right. Um, I, and there is a there is a um, a sense of we are all finally at that prom together and feel a little bit at home. And that film definitely spoke to the outsider in me, but that's on a thematic level. On a, on a craftsmanship level, that film is larger than life. It is full of glitter and glitter and glam, and it is beautifully cheesy in ways that we don't, just don't allow ourselves to be anymore. And it's also, you know, people kind of give De Palma, you know, shit for being, you know, a, a like a devotee to Hitchcock, but really there's... There's something at the core of that film that is very, very just Brian De Palma. And, you know, that's what I responded to. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about Brian De Palma because it's come up a little bit in the past with different guests. But there is something that I'm a little fascinated about the trajectory of Brian De Palma's career as a filmmaker. Because there's a queerness to Brian De Palma that I don't Indeed. think gets discussed very often. And despite yeah. being a uh, a straight presenting filmmaker, he... he 
understands queerness maybe in in the umbrella definition of the term because when you look at something like Carrie or Sisters or Dress to Kill uh, Phantom of the Paradise I would even argue that there is uh, an otherness to Scarface because uh, Pacino's performance is so heightened it's basically drag yeah that's right that um, <laughs> it's it's interesting to see how many gay men are drawn to the works of De Palma even though they're they're like masquerading as heteronormative when yeah. they're really not. Yeah. I think uh, I heard an interview with De Palma in which he says, look, nothing makes him really happier than photographing beautiful women. Mm-hmm. And I get that. Um, but there's something else that comes with the way he uses his camera that just, I don't know how, to, I don't know how to pin it down. I don't know how to pin it down. It's an extravagance. Um, there is certainly like issues with you know there's a prowliness to it too um and i guess that comes i think it's the i think it's the brian de palma uh his voyeurism and i think that comes that maybe that's part of it too and i don't mean watching people i mean being on the outside and watching others and wanting in and i think that that's where the compassion in de palma lies is that he is that guy who sits in the corner he is that character from dress to kill and he looks in at these worlds and is fascinated and excited by them, but completely not a part of it. And he wants in, and I guess he kind of creates invitations with every shot for please let me into this world. I want to be destroyed here. And I think that there's something in that that I respond to, and he does it with such such visual glam and you know in terms in terms of the queerness you know i once had a very brief conversation with don mancini about trying to convince him that <laughs> brian de palma's most gay film was snake eyes because Interesting. because by the end of it it just turns into a big male wet t-shirt concert <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but i it you know it's in body double too you know mm-hmm. that movie is just full of innuendo yeah. Yeah, and I mean I you're right. I can I can see the idea of of cultural voyeurism. Yes. And uh cuz that's really what blowout is another one where it's all about listening in. Yeah. It's always being on the outside looking in. Yeah. And I'm just kind of fascinated to think that maybe with the revisionist history of of this new discussion of queer horror that is taking place uh, in in this year of 2019, uh, that is motivated by all that's come before. Of course, reframing the way we look at these movies that we had that were essentially queer horror movies before we knew what that was. Uh, with 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 a uh, bl- blowout, it's blowout, right? Not yeah. blow up. Yeah. Oh, I did I say the... blowout? No, 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 no. no. I, I had a moment where I was like, oh, maybe not. So with with blowout, um, there is something about watching John Travolta in the dark where he feels most uh, most at home and when he is in utter isolation listening to these minute little sounds in the dark searching for purpose searching for the perfect scream uh which is what that movie all kind of boils down to you know in a beautifully sardonic way and then uh get being intercepting something phenomenal there's something in that I relate to as well um, I was certainly that kid who sat on the sidelines and was always listening. Uh, looking back, probably a little bit of self-survival in that. I was wary. Right. Um, it, you know, observing and listening taught me who and how and what to trust. And sometimes you ran across things that were 
wonderful and wonderful people and sometimes you you saw red flags a mile away and maybe there's a part of that in it as well so people often look at De Palma films and they see what he's objectifying what fascinates me is about where he is in terms of his objectification and that ride is inherently fascinating to me personally well I think too as horror fans there is a level of voyeurism to all of this, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not the thing that we discuss often when dissecting our engagement with horror. But when you take into account this idea of engagement with otherness, with the outside, with the fantastic, there is the element where we sort of love the idea of being able to peer into the darkness from a safe space. Of course. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, I'm also fascinated, kind of bringing it back to your origin stories. You were talking about your grandfathers, and uh, I liked when you said that uh, they would slide you things when they realized that maybe R.L. Stein was no longer enough. Now, by evoking the name of R.L. Stein, I think that's particularly interesting because... Let's talk about the horror that's available to you in Australia. Was it mostly imported from here? I know there's a proud tradition of uh, Australian horror films and, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, Ozploitation. We call it that here. I don't know if that term is, is something that is it's a, used there. It's, but. it's certainly a thing, and I definitely grew up knowing, like, like knowing it. I, I certainly grew up knowing about it. Uh, but in terms of when I was a kid and when I needed horror and it came across my lap, it was your R.L. Steins. Right. And that was really, really easy to find. And then, and then there was the Goosebumps TV show. There was Eerie Indiana, which was a massive thing for me. Uh, we didn't really get like, are you afraid of the dark or scary stories to tell in the dark? Those are things that I found later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and often people are like, oh, what do you think of that episode? I'm like, I never saw it. I feel terrible. It just never got over to us. Um, and then beyond that, when you make the leap to really like adult stuff, uh, there was that. There's all the exploitation, which we definitely do, you know, use as a term back home. And there are certain Australian films that I remember seeing, like, oh man, this is my jam. I remember seeing, like, the films of Richard Franklin prior to him coming over to the US to direct movies like Psycho 2. You know, when he was back in Australia making films like Patrick or Road Games, which is just such a wonderful, juicy, juicy little horror thriller i love road games and honestly when uh people discuss this the air quotes scream queen years of jamie lee curtis yeah i find that it's a movie that is often left out of the discussion uh and i don't know why but i think that road games is also one of those like hidden gems of her horror oeuvre that people ought to do well to uh, discover i do think that scream factory just announced they're going to be putting it out so maybe uh maybe this will be the road games renaissance okay i'm i'm here for it okay (laughs) i i I am just going to completely just reframe my entire trip to the u.s i'm here but to preface the amazingness that is road games and its reappraisal here in popular culture because that movie is that movie is a a burger with the works you know it's everything (laughs) it's a road trip movie it's uh it's a slasher film it's funny it is funny i yeah, i like the idea of um an ambassador for a horror film the idea that australia would, would 
give you the paperwork to say, now, Aaron, you have to go to America <laughs> right, exactly. and let them know. <laughs> Do you have anything to declare, sir, at the border? And I'm like, yes, uh, Richard Franklin is the bomb. Uh, he uh, Actually, don't say bomb at airports. Um, so uh, the thing as well about that film that I associate with so much of Australian horror is the road, as in roads themselves, long highways surrounded by open lands. There's a really great tradition of road thrillers in Australia, whether it's apocalyptic in, you know, the Mad Max vein or if it's, you know, in that type of stuff, all the way through to, you know, the the early aughts with Wolf Creek, which is essentially another road thriller. Um, It loops, it starts off on the road with these backpackers and then loops back around with people bloodied escaping down long roads. Uh, That is fascinating and there's a lot of that particular imagery in my work as well. So it's it's there's something brutal. We have a really fascinating relationship with our roads in Australia. Why do you think that is? Well, growing up, we used to have the most violent, the most absolutely violent mainstream television advertisements about drink driving, about speeding, and so every night at 6 p.m. between you know commercial breaks for The Simpsons, Australians would watch. And I'm talking about my generation. This goes back way back before that. Uh, we would watch um, uh, people having head-on collisions to to scare people into driving safely, and that was part of the culture that I grew up with. You know, my earliest kind of uh, memories in terms of the stuff that I was consuming were advertisements in Australia, and they were horrific imagery of people dying on roads because that's what the the local administrations were were putting out there to to keep people driving safe, and also the Grim Reaper ads about about AIDS awareness in Australia. Did you get that over here? No. Yeah, probably. I remember that vividly, and it certainly scared me to death when I was a young kid who wasn't quite sure where he sits in the world. Which was, uh, it was an advertisement that kind of ran for ages, and I remember it being everywhere. Which was an image of men uh, at the end of a bowling alley, and the Grim Reaper having a ball coming down and swinging the ball down and knocking these men down one by one. And it was an, uh, it was about to raise the awareness of AIDS in Australia, and it was. Horrific. It was awful. Well, uh, scarring, really, to be honest. Yeah, I suppose that's one way to raise awareness. Yeah, it's not the best way. No, not no. the best way. Let's put it that way. You know, but uh, those things were there in that culture. Um, and I think it was uh, a frankness. It was a frankness in terms of the road safety awareness campaigns, which were government funded. Those have subsequently faded out. Um, I think people are a little bit more sensitive to that type of stuff. Uh, But that's what I remember when I was a kid. I remember reading R.L. Stein and then these awful, violent babies flying through windshields, you know, at 6 p.m. on national television, this type of stuff. It was a weird... Australia can be a bit of a weird place when it's not trying to... And um, it's it's lovely. Please do come visit <laughs> when it's not trying to kill you. Uh, what a far cry from R.L. Stein, though. Um, it, it certainly is. And, you know, there were those titles that were slid across the table. And, and also, you know, the other thing that about Australia, um, and this is less to do with film, but also in terms of how things were... You access them. You, I was from a small country town. The nearest town to me was, say like an hour, like a half an hour decent drive in a straight line with mm-hmm. no distractions. So I don't know what that translates to in miles because I'm a kilometre guy, right? And we had a little mum and pa, you know, uh, video store, which I, that was my first job. That's where I worked and that was great. But the nearest one outside of that was uh, quite a distance away. And the titles in terms of what you could rent from that video store were 
what I would now call geo-blocked. You couldn't rent from there, from my town. And that they it was always out of town that you got the good stuff. And so, uh, you know, we had a basic selection in our video store. But if I went, you know, grocery shopping with my grandparents and they were like, we're going to go in and do the shopping, you pop into the video store. All I could do was look but not touch. And I certainly couldn't rent. So I had this library of video VHS covers that were speaking to me in ways that I just absolutely needed to. They weren't just speaking. They were singing and I needed to dance with these titles and with this content and I could not access them because of the location. And so what I would do is I would come home and I would draw those covers and I would then write novelizations for these movies that I had never seen based on the synopsis on the back of these cassettes. And uh, and then often when I finally did see them, when I could access them, uh, they were very, very different from what I <laughs> from what I had created on my own in the dark. <laughs> Did you find yourself let down in some cases? Well, maybe because, well, I guess, A, it taught me to write and it also taught me that the value of what you write is to be yourself. And so I looked at, I was I was writing novelizations to George Romero's Martin, but it was through my eyes. It was not the same experience. And I guess that that's, it's not so much a disappointment just as in, I learned some valuable lessons in terms of if you're going to write something, make it about you. Write what you know. Uh, You don't necessarily need to make everything an autobiography, but many, many people can tell many, many stories, but only you can tell your story, even if it's it's Aaron Dreiser's Martin. (laughs) (laughs) That's a book I would like to read, though. Um, (laughs) It'd be a lot gayer. (laughs) Well, I mean... Yeah, there's there's something going on. You know what weird noises I'm making here. Yeah. Uh, So this is a good time to to ask because usually I would uh, discuss that point where you knew fandom wasn't enough and you wanted to create. But here you are. You're already writing novelizations for films you have yet to see. (laughs) Uh, And it's laying the foundations for your work as a writer and a storyteller. When did you start branching away to decide this is this is a thing? I want to write scary stories. Um, the I guess the, there are a couple of tentpole moments. One was having expressing a desire that I wanted to be a writer to a teacher of mine on the first day of um, seventh grade and being laughed at. Oh, Aaron, that'll never happen. And I remember that hurting uh, coming from some from from an, from an English teacher. I remember that really being a brutal thing, and that crushing me for a little while. Um, and thinking that just because I lived on the other side of the planet to everything that I seemed to be reading and all the people that I wanted to meet and work with, uh, as a child, uh, was really really hard to hear. Um, so a lot of it was in defiance of that. So I I kind of learnt the craft of it from that point onwards. And the point, but then you can kind of be a really nice writer, but it's not worth a dime unless you've got something decent to say. And I stumbled into the content that I wanted to write about, obviously through reading authors, um, by seeing movies, by listening to music, by like consuming art uh, with a rabid, you know, appetite. Uh, but it actually, it all gelled with a certain experience that I had. Um, when I was at university, I was studying communications and majoring in uh, f- uh, film and television, basically, uh, which, are, which are other big passion zones of mine. I was putting myself through university, like expenses wise, by being a pizza delivery boy. And I used to, uh, you know, do the same routes every week, basically. I'd see the same people in, in, you know, in little nooks of town that I never would ever kind of 
naturally go down because I didn't ever have to. And there was this one particular family that were on my pizza route that I would see every Friday night like clockwork. It was a mum and her, you know, she was very, very pretty, young, a young mother uh, with blonde hair. And she had these two children and I'd knock on the door, you know, the pizzas are here. And I'd hear those feet, those little feet running up the hallway, like feet slapping on tiles, the door unlocking and there they were. And they always, uh, you know, they always like ordered the same things as well, which were like vegetarian pizzas and gluten-free bases. Like this was a treat, but we're going to be conservative about it a little bit, you know, Friday night. Right. Um, And I got to know them sort of. And she shot her children and committed suicide and shot herself. And I remember hearing about that and it just, I remember it rattling me deeply. And it kind of uh, taught me some lessons in terms of some home truths, which is that we don't really ever know what goes on behind closed doors and that uh, there were questions behind that door that I will never be privy to. Um, and But however, it is the exploration of the empathy uh, that goes into that type of stuff that, that was, that's my jam. Mm-hmm. And it also taught me that nothing probably ever kills uh suspense like answers so it, it was a bit of an open doorway to some degree and uh, from that came a screenplay that I turned into a short film which was like my major thesis work um, and that was called placebo and that was extremely well received won a lot of awards and then from that probably grew my first novel which was house of size and which again deals with we really just don't know what goes on inside other people's heads. Right. And landing with that type of stream of questioning was discovering certain authors that had a massive impact on me. And those are authors that you meet down the rabbit hole once you're done with, you know, your Stephen Kings and your Kuntzes and, 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 you know, and the like. And those were authors like Jack Ketchum, uh, whose, whose fiction is incredibly rattling. And I think it was when all of those stars aligned, I was, I was yes, I'm ready to write. Uh, and what I do think is interesting is growing up and engaging with horror of all the kinds that we've been discussing, the fact that it was really kind of a real life horror that kind of rattled loose this this yeah. thing for you. Because mm. there there is something to be said that we can stare at the fantastic, but the real origin of evil in, in life is far more nebulous and cryptic to us. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, I think about good and evil all the time, um, being somebody who loves this genre and loves working within it and flexing those muscles. But I guess my particular thing is that I'm looking for the good in all evil. And that is an extremely difficult and often painful path to go down. And um, and it's not always successful. Right. Uh, but it is it is that pursuit. That's where my creative endeavors are at home, which is which is weird because I'm not that type of a person at all. I'm quite I'm quite happy go lucky. I'm quite personable. I I I I'm, I'm a nice guy, but my stuff does tend to. I think I'm a nice guy. Uh, my stuff does tend to run to the very very dark because I'm looking for the very very truth at the bottom of that well, and. That's not always easy for me, right. but it's always something that I just cannot help. It keeps the balance in, and the yin and yang in my life, and it also balances out my 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 day job. You know, I'm I, I write for the love, but I still have a day job. I'm a social worker. You know, I'm working with 
uh, many, many vulnerable people and writing has become part of my self-care. And when I need to be strong for other people and I get home and I just need to embrace the fact that life is difficult and that things fuck up and that not everyone gets to dig themselves out of their mistakes, that's when my lights turn off and my computer screen starts to glow. And that's where all of that chaos comes through my fingertips and ends up on the page. I'm really drawn to this idea of finding the good within the evil because like you said that is not an easy thing especially when addressing true life issues yeah um and you spoke to this already uh but it seems to me that part of your exploration of this has to do with the catharsis yeah maybe looking at the existential dread of of everything yeah and trying to find and there's there's the cel- there's the celebration in that too because right. it's not just a one way street it's a it's the that's the great thing about being a horror movie fan is that you look for that 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 the fine line between right and wrong obscene and not obscene uh, and and you invite that into your life too that's you know when I was a kid and I read Clive Barker for the first time when I saw Hellraiser for the first time the things that attracted to me it, it attracted to me the most was not the stuff that is the most heroic it is about the stuff that was quite that that opened up that the invitation went both ways and it opened up something in me. I'm like, ah, there's something in this that is speaking to me. And that's part of the catharsis too, you know? So it's it's a two-way street to some degree. Um, and that's, I think, why it's so easy to meet people who are horror fans and go, hey, let's, let's compare scars. Yeah, and it's interesting too because I think Hellraiser is a really good example of a very different kind of horror movie because I think that, until Hellraiser was sort of released upon the zeitgeist, maybe the world at large had never seen, for lack of a better term, a fetish movie because yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that, you know, the mainstream has ever really embraced that for Hellraiser or in, engaged in that discussion. But when you watch that movie, what sets it apart of from the other kind of major horror temples of its time, like Elm Street or Friday the 13th, is that there's a degree of engagement that the characters, not Christy, but the other characters who uh, open the box. Yeah. They want it. Mm. It's a BDSM movie yeah. in, in the way that it's sort of like, maybe they didn't realize what they wanted. It's sort of the monkey's paw wish. Yeah. But it's fascinating. It's like a willing engagement in darkness. And so I'm interested that that's what the example you use, because that's really what we're talking about sometimes when we engage and uh, stare into the darkness to find that release. There is a character in Hellraiser um, that I don't think gets enough credit in terms of the the very, very clever um, juggling act that Clive Barker pulls off with Hellraiser, which is the character of Uncle Frank. Mm-hmm. Because Uncle Frank is the guy, Kirsty's the one who who had this forced upon her. Pinhead and the Cenobites are the ones who relish in it. And that's that's their that's their world. It's it's Uncle Frank. He was the guy who sought this out, who wanted the pleasure, who was looking for looking for the greatness at the center of all of that skin tearing, and uh, and that to me is this beautiful allegory for an audience's appetite for this type of stuff too. And I think we I don't think we talk about him enough. No, and also he's beautifully shot. You know, look, 
we talk about the the, the the male gaze, you know, there is a there is a gaze, there is a very, very erotic, you know, gaze behind that camera. And and I think that Clive Barker loved that guy, is fascinated by that guy. And I think that without um, you know, Uncle Frank, the it all kind of falls apart. Oh, yeah. I would even go so far as I think he loved that guy and was fascinated by that guy. But I also think the engagement is that Clive Barker is that guy. Yes, that's right. And I think that it's because of of Frank's own engagement and appetite for that darkness. And Clive being, you know, the storyteller who brings it to us. He's telling that story because he wants that story. That's right. And he's actually inviting you to like, I, this is me, wear my skin. Exactly. Lit, and by the end of it. That's exactly what the characters are doing, you know? (laughs) (sighs) Wild. Uh, So you had mentioned your path as a filmmaker. Uh, And I I know a little bit about that, but I know you more largely as an author and novelist. Um, Is film something you're still, you know, engaging in? Yeah, definitely. It's just um, a a number of my projects have been optioned, so they're in various states of... um, they're in various states of, of you know, product, you know, all of that fun stuff. Right. Um, there's one particular project that I can't talk about that is very, very close to being realized. And I'm actively involved in that. Let, I can I can put it that way. Um, uh, but I'm fascinated by the adaptation process. And it's also something that, you know, not all writers should be adapting their own work. Collaboration is key here. Yeah. I have learned a lot. You know, um, why, why would you... Uh, you know, bring people in from different disciplines with all these beautiful talents and not utilize them. Uh, I can be a resource, but I can also be a hindrance. And I love figuring out that balance. I love collaborating with people and I'm hungry for it because the fiction stuff is extraordinarily isolating up until it gets to the editorial put like point. I love film. It's definitely something I'm working on a number of screenplays. I'm always working on stuff. Um, and it's only just now that those things seem to be coming together in ways with a with a rapid succession that I had never possibly anticipated. But it's all still early days and a lot of it I can't talk about yet. Well, the but day that it's you exciting. Can, as I say, the day that you can, I'll be very excited to hear. My word, yes. Uh, you know, it is interesting because of this discussion of uh, authors adapting their own work. And we were just talking about Clive Barker. Mm. There was sort of a period of time in the 70s and 80s. And I don't know why or like what was going on at the moment that this was just a thing that they were like, sure. Yeah. That popular authors who didn't necessarily have a background in film such yeah. as you. Yeah. We're given the opportunity to just go and direct a movie. So, you know, you not only is Clive Barker adapting and directing Hellraiser, but we also see Michael Crichton, you yeah. know, adapted an, a number of his books. Uh, and other people's books. Yeah, and other people's books. Uh, even Stephen King took a, a shot at it. My with, word, did he ever. With Maximum Overdrive, a road movie, um, essentially. It, it, it very much so. John Farris did it with um, uh, Dear Dead Delilah, which is a really, really obscure little film that was just put out. Uh, you just had a Blu-ray release through, oh gosh. Vinegar I, Syndrome? It was through Vinegar syndrome and it stars agnes moorhead and my uh, and good heavens is it a, a feast it's also got a lot of atmosphere to it which you wouldn't expect but uh dear delilah look if nothing else check that out it's it's fascinating that that people were awarded that you know that 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 opportunity Crichton is really really interesting because at his heart is a is a a really uh like a a horror fan. There's a horror yeah. fan in, inside Crichton. Jurassic Park, the novel, is 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 a horror novel. Uh, but like his adaptation of Coma is fascinating. Looker is really really rich. Uh, Westworld is is you know there's a it's like a like a, a like a 
the tentpole for the Terminator, basically, as well. I think that Westworld, the uh, the original film with Yul Brenner, is one of those movies that is ripe for rediscovery by horror audiences. Yeah. I think that, you know, now that HBO has the series, maybe the disservice the series is doing is that people are not remembering there was a film. Yeah. But that film, you're right, is the, is, is the groundwork for the Terminator, but also you see Jurassic Park in it. It's sort of... If Jurassic Park's exhibits were Terminators as opposed to dinosaurs, that's what Westworld would be. Exactly, exactly. And you know, and not not every not every person who ever adapted their own book did a good job, which is often why you see them on a list of uh, you know other people who also co-wrote those projects. You know, I don't right. think I wanted ever to watch <laughs> Peter Benchley's directorial debut be Jaws. You know, right. I'm kind of glad that Stephen Guy kind of got that job uh, and also that other people were brought in to help adapt that book because it's a it's it's a great book but it's it's dry right and um, I'm glad they got rid of certain stuff and brought out others so what you're saying is Mario Puzo should not have directed The Godfather oh well, look hey that Coppola guy he's going places <laughs> um, Dracula bring it on you know what I somehow I have not discussed Coppola's version of Dracula in years and it's come up so much in the last couple of weeks in conversation look as it rightly should right okay I think that I think <laughs> I think also there's just a there's, there is. I could talk about that film. I don't think it's a great film. Uh, you know that. That's for me. That's that, that's my personal opinion. But it is a sumptuous film, and I think that its craft is being reevaluated now. I think that we're kind of at a little cusp in terms of people tiring of CGI, of of these huge big budget stuff, which is great. You know, we all love that. But there is something about the handmade quality of that particular film that I think people are finally starting to acknowledge, which may have been on the out at the time that it was released and then became very out of vogue, but which now the nuts and bolts craft of that film, I think it's a a little bit of a film school that people are, it's in the air. There's something about that film is in the air at the moment. It's a bold adaptation of the novel as well. It is. Uh, I remember at the time, Premier Magazine claimed it was the closest adaptation to a Bram Stoker, uh, Bram Stoker's novel. Which, if they you know had read Bram Stoker's novel, they would know that's not necessarily true. But it was definitely uh, an opulent movie. Yeah. And I, th- <laughs> yeah. I, I think in an era of of, of growing up with many different Draculas, it, it certainly was one that wanted to give us the absolute most. Yeah, it's a film of excesses. Let's yes. put it that way. And I kind of like that. Me too. And I'm also glad that like a lot of these movies are being rediscovered because of our cultural Keanu-sance that's going on right now. Look, uh, I'm I'm here for the Keanu-sance, okay? But for me, he was always still that kid around the fireplace, uh, around the fire pit in uh, my own private Idaho. Ah, great! A great slice of queer cinema. Yeah, uh, with with the dearly departed River Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I am uh, a Keanu fan by way of Bill and Ted, as I think a lot of people of my my, yeah. my age are. But um, hey, I like Knock Knock. No one, no one, no one is lining up to defend that. But <laughs> I I like Knock Knock. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. On it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Marvelous. Well, since we're digging into movies and kind of, you know, the magical sway that movies have, uh, one of the things while you've been here in L.A. Uh, is you've been kind of engaging with, with the city and all that means. And last night uh, you went to a midnight screening of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that uh, not only was directed by Quentin Tarantino, but you got to see it at the New Beverly, which is Quentin Tarantino's theater. Yeah. Uh, and... I'm curious because I live I live here and I've seen the movie and I, I, I like it. But as I said to you when we talked about it before we went on the air, to me it's cool because it sort of feels like a love letter to the city I live in. But for someone who doesn't, 
and uh, you know you're engaging with with movies literally from afar and this like obsession with Hollywood. How's that movie played? Did you enjoy it? Did I enjoy it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of the the relationship, you know, people say to me, Aaron, you live in Australia. You must have seen this, this, and this, and this. And I'm like, oh, I'm really bad. I'm a terrible tourist. I've seen all these other places around the world, but I'm yet to explore my own backyard. Right. Um, and I think we we have a relationship with, uh, with our own geography that is somewhat removed from the way everyone else. You rob the opportunity often to romanticize your own backyard and i would love to think that you are all doing that over here in hollywood because cinema certainly does it and the rest of the world looks to it and sees perhaps something that is or isn't real but that's okay we've got the david lynch's of the world to kind of let us know that there's an underbelly here right um but this is a particular film that because i'm here it has hit and, and i do love this city because i associate it with so many kind wonderful people um and you know it's kind of nice to have that relationship with this with this town because i don't really come here for business i come here for friends and hangouts uh that that was the perfect movie to come and see with friends at midnight in that theater around this date in this particular city. Uh, it was a unique experience. Um, I think that that film is it's it's uh, to say it's a joke would do it a disservice. Um, but when I say a joke, I think it is a film that really is without any sort of formalized structure. With a, you know, uh, uh, it's essentially a very long, long joke that pays off with a punchline that is one of the most heartbreaking things I can think of recently. Um, I because you laugh all the way through it, and then in the car ride home, I just felt a little bit like crying. Um, when you seeing that particular film at that theater and you're insulated by this wall of cinema right there is it's there on the screen and it's a good film uh, but you're also there are all these posters from the movie on the walls they're playing music through the PA system that's from 1969 you go out to to get a, a like a, a coke and some popcorn and they're only selling products from 1969 and then you you step out of that world and then you are on that boulevard at 3 a.m in the morning and reality is standing there and you you sense a loss. And I think that that is exactly what uh, Tarantino was looking for with that particular film because it is about a loss and about what could have been and what we're losing. Um, and, and I also think that it features cinema's greatest uh, ellipsis, those three dots between – and there's some controversy about where the three dots in the title uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood should be. But if you see the film, it's at a very, very, very critical – point in that sentence structure and it breaks my heart right um i was really profoundly moved by that film because it is utterly about the fantasy about what is what we've lost and what could have been yeah i think that that's true and again we're we're speaking in sort of spoiler free ways yeah but i do think that for me you're right i saw it at the new beverly as well and there is a magical transportation that happens when you see it there because I think there is, in some way, by by seeing it a Tarantino film in Tarantino's theater that he also shot some of the Tarantino film in. Yeah, uh, there is like an art installation m- moment happening where yeah. you have tr- you have transported yourself. Uh, but it's on the block where El Coyote is, where yeah. Sharon Tate had her last meal, which is highlighted in the film. You can see it from the theater, and. 
for me, leaving and, and thinking about this movie that by and large is is virtually plotless. It's it's more so about a character who is trying to make it in Hollywood who has ups and downs, and that's the journey of so many of people we know uh, who are doing it every day, friends of ours, associates of ours. Um, but I, I also thought it was a love letter to movies and yeah. a reminder that sometimes we fixate and allow tragedy to define an entire life yeah. when movies allow us to dream and we should, you know, like even in this moment, like try and remember the good things and the fantasy of what, what that that sells to us, even even if reality is, is not that. Look, the, you, you've really hit the nail on the head there. And it also kind of, it, all, it makes me a little bit teary-eyed just to think about how beautiful that is because we, I, I guess people who aren't doing the deep dive on the Tarantino, you know, into that Tarantino well, uh, they would associate him with so much violence. Right. And this is such a beautiful, kind and compassionate film with some horrific violence thrown into the commission. He can't help himself. <laughs> he can't help himself, but also that payoff is, is, is phenomenal. <laughs> um, uh, it, but it's, uh, it's, it's wistful. It's wistful. It reminded me of. Um, it reminded me a lot of Frank Darabont's *The Majestic*, which which also has a, a similar um, sentimentality to it, or to Joe Dante's *Matinee*. These, I think that that they would three would make a wonderful triple feature: *Matinee*, *The Majestic*, and *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood*, and because they are about those time capsule love letters, and also there's mortality tied to all of them, right. and also about the mortality of film itself. You know, it's changing, and it, I'm glad that these testaments, these opuses exist. And, you know, even though it seems like we might have gone on a departure to talk about a movie you just saw last night, which isn't something we always do on the yeah. show, when you take that narrative into account and you bring it all the way back to the beginning of this discussion, the idea that there is power in movies and sometimes that power is the escapism and the magic that we need. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if you are that person in that small town and there's no one else like you, <laughs> there's always the movies. Thank God for that. <laughs> and I don't know that people in the world at large realize how powerful that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how to describe it other than just a a, a well-timed ellipsis followed by, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it means a lot, you know. It um, It's transportive because it doesn't take uh, – cinema takes you to other worlds, but it brings other people into your home. Right. And, and the great thing about f stepping into the horror community is that you realize that there are all these shared experiences and there's an openness and a frankness because we've all been stirred – in the same pot, so to speak. Right. And it's kind of beautiful and rare. That's why this community is full of such often, it's often like full of such wonderfully well-adjusted, friendly, kind-hearted people. It's, you know, yeah, there's well, other genres we may need to worry about. <laughs> they, it, true. Um, <laughs> but no, we wear our weirdness on our sleeve and as a badge of honor. Yeah. And I think that's what brings us together. It's that community that yeah. we, we frequently discuss. Mm -hmm. um, so usually at this point in the show, uh, I always like to ask, even though we just talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, what else have you been seeing recently that inspires you? What's lighting a fire? Uh, what, are you, what are you watching? All right. What have I seen recently? Well, I've been traveling. Uh, so I've been watching a lot of movies on airplanes and, and a couple of things in the lead up to going away. Um, I, I recently saw Nightmare Cinema. 
the the anthology film. Speaking of Joe Dante, he has a section in that which I think is is uh, is a cracking good little little thriller. Um, and that movie really just uh, hit my sweet spot. I thought it was really really lovely actually. And again, it's a kind of nice little companion piece to Once Upon Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it is about the the very very temporal fleeting nature of cinema. Right. Um, and and about what we invest in the big screen and how it invests in us in return and that somewhat parasitic relationship that exists there. So there's a lot going on there. I recently saw um, a movie called Darlin, which is D-A-R-L-I-N apostrophe, which is this, uh, which is uh, the directorial debut from Pollyanna McIntosh, a star of the, from she's from The Walking Dead and and a number of, uh, you know, wonderful projects. She was in a t- great TV show called Happen Leonard, which is based on a Joe, Joe, uh, Joe R. Lansdale, you know, series. And, uh, she directed this really interesting, uh, very under. Um, people aren't talking about it the way that they should be right now because it's out now, um, and it is the third part in the world's most unassuming trilogy of these cannibal films that started with a movie called Offspring and then was uh, followed by Lucky McKee's The Woman, and now she is has is completing this trilogy with a film called Darlin, and it is about this wild cannibal woman and her wild cannibal daughter, and uh, the the daughter is being left at a hospital in the hope that she can deliver a baby. Now, these are all based on Jack Ketchum novels, yeah, based, right? But yeah, so we're coming back to Jack Ketchum, another inspiration, right? Except for this particular story, Jack Ketchum passed away recently. Um, really, really quite sad. Um, and, you know, I, my heart belongs to that man. He, I, I'm, I feel honoured to have met him and known him and been mentored by him. Uh, but uh, Pollyanna is kind of run with this story on her own and has done her own story. And it's about this, this woman who's trying to be essentially being indoctrinated by the church to find using, uh, you know, this young woman is taken into this hospital finds herself essentially in an orphanage run by nuns and they're trying to god the wild away from her and whilst it, it is a film that is full of incredible compassion and elegance and I've been telling people it's a little bit like Sofia Coppola with a knife uh, and it's a it's a really interesting film a little micro budget thing but that movie was speaking to me in ways I didn't expect and the kids are all great in it that's interesting. And what else have I seen recently? Oh, gosh. I'm not too sure. But the it's a great time for horror at the moment. Um, I, I'm I'm loving the stuff that's that's out there. I'm going to go see Crawl tonight, uh, all going to plan, and I can't wait to see that. I, I, I saw The Perfection recently, and I the, I was late to the game on that, and boy, am I glad that I finally caught it. I, th- I think there is so much going on in that film. I love its plot twists. I love the journey that it takes you on. I love the, that that storyline is this almost Cronenbergian uh, evolution of this narrative that is out of control and yet (laughs) manages to remain beautiful by the end of it. I think that there is a wonderful... Uh, kind of pairing between the the, the grotesquery and the beautiful in the perfection. I also recently saw Cam, the CAM. Cam, I thought of which was a fascinating, juicy thriller about going down the rabbit hole and what you find about yourself along the way and what you sacrifice to. Right. I thought that film was very, very interesting. And um, I I recently revisited... um, Oh, gosh, what did I watch? I... I, I I rewatched Jaws recently, so again coming back to Spielberg. Well, it is summer. It's summer, you know. It's summer, and I was coming to the US. I'm like, I feel like watching Jaws, uh, and that is a film of of incredible incredible craft and command. And I love reading about I love reading about the making of that film and just how 
anxiety-inducing it must have been and was for Spielberg to make it, and that at the end of it, this is the film we got. Brilliant. It's wild, too, because it's probably the last time in blockbuster history where the approach of less is more actually was utilized. Yeah. Oh, speaking of um, of of Spielberg, I recently did revisit War of the Worlds, and I've I I think that 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 is a film that a lot of people don't like. I love that film. Um, I don't think it's perfect. It's not Jaws, but I think that Spielberg is one of the masters of the food chain thriller. Mm-hmm. He is that guy who manages to create in in audiences a sense of awe. You know, we look up at the sky and we can see E.T. passing over it. We look up at the sky and we can see that dinosaur towering over us. But he uses that exact same sense of awe and turns us into food. And he does that in Jaws and he turns us in, uh, into food and crops and dust in War of the Worlds, and I think that there is something utterly bone-crunchingly terrifying about the way he puts us in our place in those two films. Well, someone has to. My, we need to be taken down a notch, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess Steven Spielberg is the guy to do it. Hey, you know, Steve, anytime. <laughs> uh, so we talked about what you're watching. We've talked about some of the things that you're working on, some of which you can't say. But uh, what is what is next that you can talk about? What should we be uh, looking out for? Yeah, I just um, I've just had a new novel released uh, called A Place for Sinners, and it is uh, again about escaping your trauma and trying to reconcile it, and uh, taking your flaws with you wherever you go. It's a it's it's a, a backpacking novel about you know a. a, a a brother and sister who are going on a backpacking sojourn through Thailand, uh, and obviously they uh, meet <laughs> obstacles along the way. <laughs> um, and again, working on some other adaptations, and I just sold a new novel as well, uh, which is tentatively called Lady uh, Guillotine. Um, and I'm I'm currently working on a number of projects which are particularly queer orientated, which I'm really excited about. Um, I'm working on a novel at the moment, which is, uh, which is, you know, about the relationship between two men trying to make something out of nothing. And it's kind of like an emotional Frankenstein to some degree. Uh, and yet it's a kind of like a, like a nineties domestic thriller throwback through this queer lens that I'm just loving being in that world and that's that's a novel at the moment but it's in the early stages and i'm loving being a part of that now is curating and creating queer content important to you yeah it is it is um i think that like uh like some of the people that were spoken about today um you can have a perspective that you bring and inject into everything and i think that that's great and sometimes that's better you know i love looking for the invitation to have that secret whispered in my ear through a certain style. Um, But also I think uh, having somebody say, do you know what? We're just like everyone else. Now let's do our thing. You know, let's just be ourselves. I think that that is important and it is freeing and it is liberating because when you are that kid in the middle of nowhere, sometimes those messages that those subliminal messages don't get to you. The curation, the, the, like people picking and choosing for you does happen. Uh, there are a lot of gatekeepers on the way to that small town. And sometimes you lead, you really need a loud, bold message to come through. And I love that this is happening now. Um, I love that there are podcasts that are doing this, that there are books that are doing this and that there is film and television that is doing this. Art has been doing it for a lot longer, you know, for the, you know, to some degree. Um, and I'm happy that it is happening now because 
somewhere there is someone listening to this and it is connecting to them on some level that they need to hear at the right time, at the right place. And that person might be in the middle of nowhere and thinking, gosh, how nice it would be to not feel like I'm the only one. Well, you were once that person in the middle of nowhere and now you're one of the people who is making this happen. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you. And, uh, you know, for people interested in keeping up with your books and all the other things that you're doing, where can people find you? Look, just at Twitter. Twitter at Aaron Dries is the way to go. I'm on Instagram at Aaron underscore Dries. Uh, and, you know, you can hit me up on Facebook. But in, in terms of, like, my fiction, the best place to go is just, you know, hit up Amazon, hit up Goodreads, all those fun places. Hit your local bookstores. If you're here in town in L.A., go to Dark Dells. You know, go to support your brick-and-mortar chains uh, because not only is it where you're going to find great content, it's where you're going to find writers because writers are readers above all else or they should be right (laughs) often they're not but um uh, check out yeah check out your local stores there's a there's a great there's great horror fiction happening at the moment both at a large press medium press and small size press level it is a rich fertile time to be a horror reader definitely do the deep dive Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show today Uh, and for taking time on your rock and roll world tour to come and see us. Yeah, baby. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.